each evening we'll be exploring through talks uh, ways of, especially of orienting and understanding our practice. And for those who are newer to the evening talks, um, one suggestion is to really listen connected with your bodies and with your sense of presence. We'll have recordings which will be available after the retreat where you could get some of the uh, details or you know, fine points, but especially uh, to listen for what resonates with you. Maybe in a talk there'll be two or three things that resonate that help uh, guide your practice. That's one way to approach the talk, both to cultivate presence and just to listen for what most uh, speaks to you. Even if it's maybe something that's not directly said, but it leads to some insight or some understanding. That happens. The subtitle of this retreat, as many of you know, is Embracing the Dark and Inviting the Light. You know, at this time of the winter solstice, this time of darkness. And what I want to do tonight is to explore uh, a number of different understandings uh, related to a sense of darkness that can guide our practice. So I want to talk about six uh, dimensions of darkness. One of them is, uh, much like the solstice, the darkness as a stopping, as we explored yesterday. Second is understanding the darkness as the difficult or sometimes the painful. How do we work with that? A third understanding is the darkness as not knowing. As being in a state of unknowing. And the fourth uh, sense is darkness as shadow. Both our personal shadow and the collective shadow. The fifth theme is the darkness as generative and fertile, like the earth. You know, as mentioned yesterday, when the earth is dark, it's getting ready for explosions of light right, that will manifest in the spring. So the fifth theme is darkness as fertile. And then the sixth theme is darkness as uh, luminous. The darkness as bringing forth light. And so I want to point to how these understandings can really uh, guide our practice. And I love that we can do so in a way that uh, connects with the time of year. The solstice, the actual solstice, is less than 72 hours away. 2.45 p.m. on Friday. 
we'll have to have trumpets and all sorts of things happening. And that this is our way of uh, really, uh, we could say, being more fully with the, with, with the earth. Much like many of you know, the ancient, uh, so many ancient cultures did that, but many of you know that uh, Stonehenge, the core um, structures at Stonehenge were designed to have alignment with the, with the sunset of the winter solstice. That was what, what, that was what those structures were about. And one uh, aspect that we can really see in uh, looking at these different aspects of darkness is that we're going against a tendency to see the dark as simply negative, which is very common, right, in the culture. Talk about the dark ages or uh, just use the dark, not seeing, as it were, the, uh, the different dimensions. And uh, this is from uh, the, the poet and mythologist Michael Mead. He says, those who would know the world and recover the dream of life must pass through the darkened center, traveling where no ideology can know the meanings in the human soul. Here, success and speed are an encumbrance. It is better to move carefully and examine whatever appears. On most days, America fears the darkness. The open 24-hour signs and lights always on say that. The rejection of darker people says that. The win-at-any-cost dogma says that. Yet always climbing to the top and rising to the light casts an increasing shadow over the world and loses touch with many things that the earth darkly knows. I was thinking of uh, having some time, uh, gosh, a long time ago, like when I was first starting my practice, fairly young, 40 years ago, and I had some time with the great Thai teacher, Achan Cha, who was a teacher of Jack Kornfield and others, and I think his only trip to the US, I'm not sure. And he was very struck by the amount of lights on in the United States. <laughs> he said, he came to say, a lot of external light, not so much inner light. <laughs> So the first theme uh, that can guide our practice is the sense of darkness as stopping. And we looked at that some last night. And in a way, all of us, by having come on retreat, are in a sense stopping. We're moving away from the habitual activities. And of course, uh, we find that as we come on retreat, we don't simply leave our habitual minds with our suitcases, do we? Anyone find your habitual mind occasionally here today? Okay, about, about one quarter raise their hands. Yeah. But, uh, and so, yeah, I remember uh, be, being, I, I lived in Kentucky for uh, four years 
And I often went out to uh, the Trappist Monastery where Thomas Merton was a monk. And I still go there once a year and spend time there. I was there just about almost exactly a month ago. And uh, being there, I, I, read, the, I read once the uh, instructions for uh, new monks. Basically, they were, they were called novices. And right, the, like the first paragraph, it said, you think that you have left the world, but the world has followed you in here. <laughs> and so we can see that in certain ways, that the, you know, the habitual mind is there. And we learn how to both uh, give room for it and not be reactive towards it, overly critical towards it. But we also learn how to be skillful with habitual mind. And one of the aspects of that is learning to not simply let it have its way. We learn how to skillfully work with uh, gathering the mind, developing what's called in the tradition samadhi, usually translated as concentration, but really a kind of gathering and unification of our being. And so we work with the anchor that Oren mentioned in the morning. We work with that anchor and we keep on coming back. We learn how to uh, uh, stop more, not have the mind uh, be quite so active, busy, habitual. And so we actually practice a kind of stopping here. It's not like we deliberately suppress thoughts, but we learn how to see them so they don't, what, uh, rule, run away with us, whatever, whatever we want to say. And the key to, the key to that uh, development of uh, stability of mind, which is so crucial in our practice, the key is to have a, a kind of a paradoxical combination of ease and persistence. But usually in our culture, they don't go together. You're persistent, you're tight, right? You have ease, just uh, not so disciplined maybe. And so in the, in the tradition, that sense of coming to more stability, the uh, quality of it was likened to uh, a lute, a stringed instrument, neither too tight nor too loose. So you can work with that instruction. At the beginning of a sitting, say, not too tight, not too loose. And say that to yourself. And you can also know where you fall in terms of that balance. You know, if you fall more on the tight side, maybe you say, let me just loosen a bit. That's a way to work. So a lot of how practice works, we work with intention. We often say that the intentions don't guarantee anything, but they help. So it helps just to, we're inclining in a certain direction. The second aspect of being with the darkness is being able to be with what's difficult and even painful. Very crucial way of understanding and approaching 
what we call the, this practice, this practice of cultivating mindfulness, compassion, wisdom, understanding, skillful action. And so a part of our training here, a part of our practice, is to learn to be more skillful when things are difficult in all sorts of ways. And we've already had a lot of guidance on that in the morning with, with Oren, uh, guiding us particularly how to be with uh, sleepiness or restlessness, which could appear difficult. And Heather, in her instructions in Metta, particularly talked about how uh, often the tendency is when there's something painful to struggle with it. And I'll come back to that point because it's really, in a sense, right at the center of our practice. And so our habitual tendency with the difficult or painful is what? Is to what? Get rid of it. Push it away, right? Wish it wasn't there. And we do that sometimes directly by trying, just trying to get rid of things. Uh, and sometimes we do that through blaming or judging ourselves. Oh, this is painful. I'll feel better if I blame myself. <laughs> right? There's one of my favorite little meditation cartoons shows a young meditator, very, um, very motivated, sitting. And the young meditator says, today, I will live in the present moment. Unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. <laughs> Anyone relate to that? <laughs> right, so that shows our more habitual tendency. And the, the being with what's difficult is actually right at the center of our practice. And there, there are several teachings which bring this out. One that's not taught very much is called the teaching of uh, transcendental dependent origination. It's a different version of, some of you know the teaching of dependent origination, which is the teaching that was uh, the fruit of the Buddha's awakening. And it's probably the most detailed map of what leads to dukkha, usually translated as suffering. And uh, transcendental dependent origination is more like how you come to freedom. Dependent origination shows the cycle that leads to suffering. And transcendental dependent origination shows what leads to freedom. The first step on that path, the first link, is when we have a different approach to the unpleasant when we don't simply react and try to push it away. And when we have a different way of approaching what's difficult, it opens up the path of freedom. I'll try to bring that out. And there's another teaching that uh, really brings this out maybe in a clearer way, in a way that's very uh, easily applicable to our practice. And this is... Uh, this is a teaching which I talk about every other talk I give. So those of you who've heard me give talks, 
or whether live or these days people come up, I've been listening to you on Dharma Seed. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the, the internet just is kind of, I mean, had people from Kazakhstan and, you know, yesterday wrote an email to someone in France. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, a little bit of a digression. Um, anyway, this is a um, kind of, it's both, I think, my favorite teaching of the Buddha. It's called the teaching of the two arrows. And it's also, I think, the most succinct teaching that gets right at the heart of what our practice is. And it's really about how to be with the difficult or painful. So here's the teaching. The Buddha was talking to a group of practitioners and he asked them a question based on this observation. He said, everyone experiences at times the unpleasant or the difficult. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? And they didn't answer his question. They said, please tell us, reverend sir, or whatever the translation is. Please tell us. And so he um, discussed it himself. And he primarily discussed it in terms of what was physically difficult. I'm going to broaden that and talk about different kinds of difficulties, mental, emotional, interpersonal, and so forth. And so he said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. And we could say that this is when when there are physical difficulties, when we have um, unpleasant mental experiences, difficult thoughts, maybe we blame ourselves or we, we think you know, we create narratives about how the retreat will be in two days that are negative, whatever. Um, we have difficult emotional experiences, difficult emotions that are hard to be with, maybe sadness or sometimes anger, fear, anxiety, and so forth. We have difficult uh, interpersonal uh, interactions, obviously. And we, have, we have situations in which we're not treated fairly, maybe treated unjustly, and so forth. And the Buddha said in, the, in, in having these unpleasant experiences, practitioners and non-practitioners are all the same. And he said, that's like being shot by an arrow. Having an unpleasant experience is like being shot by an arrow. And he said, that is the first arrow. And everyone experiences that. Where the practitioner differs from the non-practitioner is in what they do once they experience the first arrow. And I should say that by practitioner, we mean we, someone who is actually practicing the moment. And by non-practitioner, we could mean us when we're not practicing, just to be clear. And so what happens, uh, what happens when we are, as it were, not practicing fully. Or what was the Buddha getting at? He said, the, the non-practitioner 
tends to shoot a second arrow, and we would say at oneself or at others, as if that would help the pain or the difficulty. And this is a very habitual tendency, very habitual reaction. What are, what are some examples of that? Sometimes when we have physical pain, we tense. We don't want it, we tense. And one of the first uh, interventions in the medical field using mindfulness was made by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School where he worked with people with chronic pain and he found that a large amount of many types of chronic pain, not all types of chronic pain, but many types of chronic pain, there can be a way that we tense around the pain. And, and some uh, researchers say that as much as 80% of the pain is the reaction, not the original stimulus. And so if, if they could teach people to not react so much, it could uh, lessen chronic pain tremendously. So that reaction is the second arrow. We know it more obviously mentally or emotionally. Something doesn't go well, maybe here or in daily life. We blame ourselves, we blame others, we react, we create a negative narrative, we have difficult emotions, we go on and on. You know, we have a difficult interpersonal interaction and we have negative thoughts about that person for the next day or the next 30 years, right? That would be shooting the second arrow. Is that familiar? And so what the Buddha said is that right at the heart of practice is to learn a different approach. It's to learn not to shoot the second arrow. And I like to use the word reactivity for shooting the second arrow. And it's, you know, there's a way that we can be reactive, especially in this teaching, it's about pushing away. But we're also reactive by grabbing hold. Like in the uh, little story with the meditator with the cookie, right? I don't, something's not happening like I want it. I react by grasping onto something or I grasp on because I think that will get me what I want. Right? And we know that, some, those of you who know the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which is take, often taken the essential teaching, it's really about seeing how we, t- <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> how we tend to uh, grasp often as if that would make us happy. And the teaching, the core teaching, right at the center of all, the, all of our practice is this possibility of being non-reactive, being with the unpleasant and not reacting in a habitual way, being with the pleasant and not reacting in the usual way. This is... For me, this is a very sort of down-to-earth, ordinary English way of talking about the Four Noble Truths. It's talking about what's right at the core of all the teachings. And of course, I can say it simply, saying that we learn better to be non-reactive. We learn to be responsive rather than reactive. That's a very ordinary English way of talking about it. 
to really know what that means, we have to really unpack it in all sorts of ways. We could unpack it. What does it mean in terms of meditation? What does it mean in terms of our relationships? What does it mean when I have difficult emotions and so forth? So it's a lot to unpack, but this is really the core guide. And so we could work with that here by in a few different ways. First of all, we can notice when something is unpleasant. We may give some more formal meditation instructions in a few days, but we can actually notice that something is unpleasant because if, it, if we notice that, we can be on the lookout for the tendency to push away reactively. So it's actually a meditation instruction when something's unpleasant in the body, say to yourself, unpleasant. Doesn't make it go away, but you're on the alert for that tendency to react. Should maybe back up a little bit and say, we have, we have some guidelines where we really try to see the level of the unpleasant. And if the level of the unpleasant is overly intense, where we can't really be balanced and mindful, then generally the instruction is not to be with it, but to shift, out, shift away from that. That's a pretty important instruction. That we want to learn how to recognize, oh, that's unpleasant. And when it's in the manageable range or the workable range, we try to be with it. So we have an unpleasant emotion. We try to be with it. Can I be with this anger? What's it like in the body? What's it like... Uh, in terms of my thinking. I have anxiety. What's it like? Let me be with it. Let me study. You know, a lot of our practice is about really studying and investigating. But we have to have that, first, that initial guideline of knowing the level of intensity. If it's too much, you know, for example, if there's anything that approaches uh, traumatic reactivation, we generally pull back. You know, we can pull back, we might open our eyes. If there's something pretty intense, we can open our eyes, we can look around. Some of the, Heather gave some guidance on this uh, uh, yesterday. Was that yesterday? Or was it three days ago? <laughs> so, so we can learn to be with the unpleasant. When we have something that's in the workable range, it actually can be learning to be with something physically unpleasant for a while. And watch the tendencies. It's pretty, um, you know, it brings one humility, right? Because a lot of, I think we live in a culture of a lot of comfort, right? Many of us, not maybe not all of us. And we get very used to things always being pleasant, right? And so it can actually be tremendous learning to see that tendency, to see that tendency by being with what's unpleasant for periods of time, as long as it's not an ordeal, and it's not too much, right? That can be valuable. This is not central in our promotional literature. Come to the wonderful winter solstice retreat. Hang out with unpleasant experiences more than you counted on. Be encouraged to spend more time with the unpleasant. It's not in our promotional literature, right? No. Come watch your neurotic habits of mind. 
more than you might have wanted to. I, I once checked on the Spirit Rock website. Nothing like that was really part of the website or the promotional literature. But it's true, isn't it? At least at some point. At some point we work, we, we have the unpleasant come up. And this is true individually, it's also true culturally. As you know, the, the mainstream society doesn't really want to be with the painful experiences of our, of our past. You know, and so we don't come to grips with you know, the near genocide of Native Americans or slavery and Jim Crow. We don't want to deal with that, you know. We make believe often that it's over. You know, sometimes we look at it more. But that not wanting to look at the painful or difficult, we can see it on a, in a collective way. I mean, very manifest now in terms of climate issues, of course, right? We can see that. Um, you know, it'd be wonderful if we had the equivalent of what happened in South Africa, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that was willing to look at what was difficult. And one of the, um, I think one of the fruits of our practice, especially following this particular guidance, is that we become able better to be with what's difficult in our own lives, but also for others. You know, if we can be more skillful with what's difficult or painful, we become incredibly valuable for others. I think of that both interpersonally and I think of it on a larger scale in terms of society. You know, if this is, uh, if we're coming to what may be a difficult period in the next, next years, we need people who aren't scared of what's difficult who have a ability to go there and to not run away and to be skillful especially, to know the teaching of the two arrows. So I really think this particular teaching, understanding of darkness as the difficult and painful and how to work with it is so central to our practice, can really guide us. And we'll say, we'll say different things about how to be with the difficult in, in our instructions in the morning. And one thing I didn't mention, which is actually really crucial, is one of a, a key um, practice, really a perspective to bring in with the difficult, is that of kindness, compassion, metta, loving kindness. You know, much as Heather and one of the guided practices invited us to be with uh, metta, with pain that might be there in the body. That if there's, if there's uh, a difficult experience, sometimes painful experience, bringing the heart practices in is really crucial. So we can actually, if we wish, do the metta practice, the version of it that works for us, we can do that not just in the four o'clock session, but do it uh, at other times. Do it the first 10 minutes of a sitting, the last 10 minutes. Especially if you're feeling some, you know, like there's been a little bit heavy, right? Or a little bit painful. 
today, this morning, whatever, it really can be helpful to bring in that, that sense of kindness and hold it in that way. It can be very, very skillful. A third sense of the darkness is the darkness as not knowing, as unknowing, as uh, what? Uh, Being in the dark, being in the dark about something. And this quality of not knowing is also really, really central in our practice. It's connected with what uh, the Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. The ability to be present and fresh to experience. There's a kind of not knowing that we cultivate. You know, sometimes in our daily practice, we get used to, maybe if we meditate every day, sometimes get used to just meditating so I can get to that level of calm and peace that's really nice. And we kind of manipulate our mind and body so to get there. Does anyone relate to that? Yeah, it's quite common. Do teachers ever do that? Perhaps. <laughs> and so uh, this quality of uh, unknowing is a beautiful quality for our practice, especially with a retreat, because sometimes retreats can feel long sometimes, right? Anyone counting the days yet? <laughs> and one of the ways to bring freshness and interest is to have an approach of saying, I don't know what's going to happen in this sitting. What's going to happen? It's an entirely new experience. This sitting has never occurred in the history of the universe, ever before. And it's happening right now. Oh my gosh, how exciting. And we can have that attitude, or you know, it might come through having a sense of mystery. What's going to happen on this sitting? Ah, mysterious. Let me be with the mystery, particularly if you're uh, sometimes feeling, uh, what, um, bored or not having that quality of interest. Bring in that sense of not knowing. It's a very powerful, beautiful quality of, of practice, of simply being there in an open, spacious way, listening for what's happening, listening for what my experience is, without needing to have anything happen. There's a lot of freedom there, isn't there? The ability to say, let me be with whatever might occur. It's also something important to have that sense of not knowing sometimes when we go into periods of transition or when significant parts of our lives are unresolved. Is anyone, anyone in a transition or have a significant part of your life unresolved? Yeah. And so this quality of unknowing can be very powerful. I know for myself, I've had two periods in my life when I had the privilege really of taking when I didn't know what came next. And I was able to take about a year and make the money work so that I was kind of minimally getting by, but I had a lot of open time. 
and time for retreats and for a little bit of traveling. But it was a way to uh, not fill up things, not fill up my life with activity. Often we need to clear up some space in order to know what comes next or, or to resolve something. Of course, we're doing that here in many ways. We're, we have that openness. We can do that in a retreat. We can do that maybe in a longer period of time. You know, and it was very precious. And both of those instances, something appeared which I wasn't quite sure of. One, one time something appeared that I kind of knew it might be there, but it was more intellectual and I didn't feel it in my guts. And giving the open time, something was really deeply intuitive. And one of the practices that we recommend here, if you have unresolved issues, it may um, be very much the case that you're thinking about them here. You know, they come up because we have a certain clarity of mind. Oh, that's a great idea. That's what I should do. And our encouragement is to not follow the trail of that thinking very much, but recognize it as important and say, the last morning, when I'm still in a pretty quiet meditative state, as much as that's possible, I will go back to the unresolved issue and bring my day seven clarity to see what, and, and take 15 or 20 minutes and reflect, journal, whatever. But protect your retreat, really important. Protect the retreat. And so we can have that sense of really uh, being comfortable when something is unresolved, when we don't know. And just be, in, in, in a sense, listening, listening deeply. Listening is a powerful metaphor for our practice and it's found in a lot of traditions. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition, the great meditator Milarepa is often shown in uh, Tonka's Tibetan uh, paintings like we have here with his hand to his ear, listening. And Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, who graces the back of our hall, is said to be she who listens to the cries of the world. That listening, so, so central. From the poet uh, Rilke, have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot be now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. So that ability to listen, to, in a sense, love what's unresolved. Mysterious, right? We might say it's to love the journey and not so much worrying about where you're going to go. In the last few years, I've been doing some teaching and studying on the theme of what's called the dark night of the soul. Some of you may know this. It comes out of Christian, really Catholic, uh, mystical tradition. You know, and the person who coined the phrase was uh, St. John of the Cross, who was a Spanish 
uh, mystic, practitioner, very interesting person, lived in the 16th, last part of the 16th century. When you study his biography, it seems that he, you know, he was in, uh, in Spain, and it seems like his family ancestry had both Jewish and Muslim roots. Quite interesting figure. And he wrote about the dark night of the soul, which was something that occurred when, at a pretty advanced state of spiritual practice, when everything becomes dry and you don't know where to go. And this can happen sometimes from loss or from just uh, sometimes just uh, um, for some reason things dry up. What was formerly meaningful is no longer meaningful. Sometimes it's even hard to function for a period of time. And he said that in that dark night, which is not exactly the same simply as having a hard time. And it's actually, he said again, it's a, it's a kind of an advanced level of spiritual development, but he says one has to know how to unknow. One has to know how not to need to know, so to speak. Using Christian language, he said, the soul walks to God through human unknowing. We have that in the Buddhist tradition as well. You know, probably the best known in our generation was a uh, Korean Zen teacher who I studied with some named uh, Sun Sanim. And he would just always say, practice, don't know mind. Don't know. What's the truth? Don't know. What's happening? Don't know. Just practice, don't know mind. Right? So it's more that sense of openness and uh, being willing to look freshly. Again, Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, talked about it as beginner's mind. And it's hard. It can be, again, it can be a dark night. Uh, personally, it can, I think there can be also that dark night collectively. And, and for many of us, that's sometimes there. I was very struck in the last week. I don't know if anyone saw this, but there was a 15-year-old um, a girl from uh, Sweden named Greta Thunberg who um, traveled from Sweden to the uh, climate talks in Poland with her father by electric car. <laughs> and uh, she spoke about how, she didn't use the language of the dark night, but she spoke about how she had gone through a period after she learned, starting at age nine, about climate issues. <laughs> and she had talked about, she talked about how she was shocked. And she also couldn't believe that people weren't doing anything. You know, 10, 11. And she actually um, stopped eating. She became very depressed, stopped eating, left school. And her parents actually more or less dropped their careers to take care of her. And she was going through that kind of a, a dark night. And I'll come back to, I'll leave a little bit of suspense. <laughs> and come back to her <clears throat> in a little bit. 
But for many of us, there can, there can be that dark night. The, the fourth theme, it's really related to some of this, it's the, dark, the darkness as the shadow. And this can be personal shadow or collective shadow. And these are, in psychology, the shadow is those parts of ourselves that we don't want to look at, that we sort of uh, put into the unconscious. You know, it can be, if I was raised not to be angry, it might be my anger. It might be my sexuality. It might be my, something I'm ashamed of in my life. We put that into the shadow. And part of this being with the darkness is to be willing to look there. The psychologist Jung said, the shadow is the negative side of the personality, the sum of all those unpleasant qualities we like to hide. And of course, some of that turns up in meditation. Right? You sit in meditation, it's like the idea is we sit and we have very, very little input. Guess what we experience? Things start bubbling up, right? From what's there. And if you've done retreats, you know that happens some. You know, and I think, for, you know, for, so for example, um, I, I was raised in a family which I did think uh, repressed anger. And so I was very uncomfortable with anger when I um, was in relationship with people who <laughs> got angry. It was, freaked me out. Right? It was hard. And so naturally enough, I had one retreat where I was angry for um, like 16 hours a day for 10 hours, for 10 days in a row at my anger retreat. Not that, not that it works like that. <laughs> Don't worry. But it was, it was. But the uh, the shadow material comes up. Huh? Anyone relate to that? Some things coming up in your own experience that are sort of submerged, and that's part of our practice. Again, it's also part of collectively being with the collective shadow, the things that we submerge collectively. And so again, uh, we can do that in meditation. And again, very important to hold it with compassion and kindness. Some of it's difficult for us to really, you know, if we're going through any of these areas of darkness I mentioned, to hold them with kindness. Uh, The shadow, you know, in uh, the psychological traditions, of course, is often studied as it manifests in dreams. You know, and um, dreams on retreats are quite something. (laughs) Anyone had some interesting retreat uh, dreams last night? It's fascinating. It's really amazing to watch. Uh, you know, I remember uh, you know, people come in to us as teachers and say, last night in my dream I was an axe murderer. Is this my true nature? <laughs> and we say, no, it's you know, just very normal. <laughs> so things come up, whatever, our aggression or whatever. So we, you know, in psychological tradition, we would study it through dreams. We can explore it through art but also meditation. We can be with it and, and again, give some room for the shadow. Uh, give some room to, to see it in that way. I'm going to spend the rest of the talk, just a little bit of time, exploring how the, uh, the darkness can also be generative and fertile. It's very much like the earth. That, you know, the, we talked about the darkness as stopping, darkness as uh, 
the difficult and painful, darkness as uh, not knowing, darkness as shadow, but darkness is also generative and fertile and also luminous. I'll, I'll talk about those aspects of darkness. I think it really follows in a way from what we've explored so far that we can know that being with the difficult or painful can be fruitful. That there can be uh, rewards, tremendous learning when we're with the difficult or painful. It's not what we most ask for, right? We don't say, give me more pain so that I can learn a lot. Anyone ask for that? <laughs> Typically not, but it happens. And when we have that approach of not following the uh, habitual, reactive way of being with the difficult or, or painful, we open up the possibility of learning of actually learning, oh, these are my habitual tendencies. Oh, they're more skillful ways of being with the difficult. Oh, the difficult isn't just a curse, but something that I might, that might actually open up to something positive. Oh, a difficult time might be the opening to really important learning that I wouldn't have without the difficult experience. Again, we don't ask that, but again, we can see that. We can see that in the lives of people, maybe that we know. You know, I think of my father, who was, some of you, some of you knew him, Simon. And uh, I have a bench for him down in the uh, old courtyard. I go sit on it. I kind of talk with him every day. He died uh, over 10 years ago. And he, um, he's had a lot of uh, pain in his life. You know, he was um, um, he enlisted in the Second World War when he was 18. And he saw a lot of people die. And he uh, went through that experience. He being of, uh, at that time, uh, being of Jewish ancestry, he was not able to get into medical school because they had quotas. Not always widely known, the quotas until the early 60s. When he was, but he went into uh, a scientific field and he was doing experiments for the government that probably were not well supervised and they affected his eyes and he actually went blind when he was pretty, pretty young. I did not hear him complain, right? And something uh, was inspiring, you know, it was very powerful. Something really opened up in his heart and he stayed with it. And there was some kind of learning that occurred and especially I think his heart opened. It was a different modality that he worked with. It was the fruit, he didn't ask for that. But there were fruits of that experience, right? That I could, that I, um, could see. You know, it's, it's interesting that in a lot of cultures, it's the blind who are the, the most wise. You know, I know in ancient Greek culture, that's the case. The figure named Teresius. And so there, there are fruits from these difficult experiences. You know, another, another story of um, um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. 
was um, in the early stages of the uh, campaign in Montgomery, you know, to uh, for desegregation. And at that time, there were not answering machines, and he would answer calls. He once, in the middle of this campaign, got a telephone call saying, and using the, the N-word, if you don't immediately go out of town, we will blow up your house with all your family. And it was midnight. He had just got home, and his family were, was asleep. And he said that he went through this really, really hard experience. And he said, it's midnight, and he, he made a cup of coffee, which wasn't probably great to do at midnight, but that's what he did. And he made a cup of coffee, and he said, I can't call my parents. They're over in Atlanta. I can't talk to anyone, and I think I'll give up. I think I will leave town. This is too much. And he had a kind of crisis of faith, both in terms personally and in terms of his campaign and the movement. But he stayed with it, and he, he said he uh, needed to uh, finish drinking his cup of coffee. And he stayed with it, and something started coming to him. He actually said that he uh, heard um, the voice of Jesus. He, something came to him saying, uh, Martin Luther, you are doing good work. Continue, and I will always be with you. Something came out of that experience, and what happened, uh, I, think, I think two or three or four days later, his house actually was bombed. And luckily, no one was hurt. And people remarked at when he, would, he gave a press conference, they remarked on his level of balance and equanimity. And he said it was connected with that experience, which came out of this really awful time. So again, we could probably give many other examples, but there, there are ways that uh, the difficult experiences uh, can be very fruitful when we stay with them, when we're skillful, when we're skillful with them. Rumi has a version of this. He says, stay up all night and come into light. Stay with the darkness and come into light. Greta Thunberg somehow stayed with that uh, what I was calling a dark night of the soul with the climate. And she came out of it and she went back to school, but she started taking uh, one day a week, striking. She would sit in front of the school with a sign, striking for the climate. <laughs> school strike for the climate. And she would do that one, one day a week. And then she later did three weeks with sitting in front of the Swedish parliament telling them to do more. And she, uh, she became a spokesperson and pretty amazing. You can see uh, videos of her, really, really affected me. 
and she then she was invited to speak near the end of the climate talks in Poland. And I'll read the end of her comments. The year 2078, this is sort of coming through the dark night into a, kind of a profound offering to the world. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend the day with me. Maybe, maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes until you start focusing on what needs to be done rather than what is politically possible. There is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within the system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you. So that came out of that, that came out of a dark night. That came out of being and having support, also very crucial. From the uh, Sufi poet Hafez, I wish I could show you when you were lonely or in the darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. So there are ways that as we learn to be with the difficult, the painful, learn to be with not knowing, something starts clearing out inside of us. I think in our relationships as well. Something starts clearing out and we have more access to the luminous in our own being, to what's shining, to what's beautiful, to the compassion, to the wisdom. And it really is a, a product. You know, in my own practice, it's been kind of a rhythm of retreats which are wonderful, especially in my first uh, years of retreats, of retreats which are wonderful and retreats which are really difficult. <laughs> Luckily, they're more or less balanced, <laughs> which, which worked. But there's a way that that rhythm starts clearing out something internally, which makes us more of a vessel for our own inherent light, which is there really in our in our being. One of my favorite passages from the Buddha says, our mind and hearts are luminous, but they get covered over. And so our practice, particularly being with the challenges, with the unknowing, opens us up to that light, to what is luminous. We need a lot of patience, don't we? Yeah, we need to you need to, we start with the small challenges or painful things or unknowing, and we gradually become able to be with, with bigger ones.
And so in the dark night of St. John, the last phase of the dark night of the soul is coming into light. Maybe I'll end with uh, uh, one of my favorite poems from uh, Pablo Neruda from Chile, who really writes about this core practice of being with the dark, you know, and really probably in all these senses, darkness as stopping, darkness as uh, being with the difficult or painful, darkness as not knowing, darkness as being with the shadow, darkness as generative, fertile, darkness as ultimately giving the luminous, the light. So listen for those as I read this short poem. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. That's, that's our practice, isn't it? So let's just sit for a moment on the rim of the well of darkness. <laughs> let the, let whatever was important for you maybe from the talk, uh, be there for you. It might be one of the themes of the talk or maybe something that occurred to you that actually isn't even directly related to the talk. So see what, see what has arisen for you that's helpful and see also what might guide your practice. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So thank you for your kind attention. We'll have a walking period, a little more than uh, 20 minutes, and we'll come back for a um, sitting, which Heather, shall we say, most likely will be a little shorter than normal. Is that okay to say? Yeah. So uh, we'll do a little shorter sitting, recognizing that this, I believe, is the first full day. <laughs> we'll come, it'll be, it'll maybe 
do, maybe it'll be, what, 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll have some chanting at the end. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.